This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, December 9th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, just to revisit that moment of Joe Biden threatening to punch an 83-year-old retired farmer who asked him a disjointed, confusing question. As you know, last week on The Gist, I weighed in with some analysis. I thought it was fairly anodyne. I almost said to myself, is this even worth getting into? How could any reasonable person disagree? Basically, all I said was something like, it's bad for presidential candidates to threaten anyone attending their question and answer session with physical violence. If you want that just to be the top line takeaway. I can live with that if that was my message to you and the message sunk in. Do I really need to go beyond that? If so, I will. And the next level analysis was maybe something like Joe Biden probably wasted an opportunity to counter ignorance, ignorance that goes beyond this one person. And maybe Biden should have laid some erudition on the fellow or as Biden called him Jack or maybe also fat. Well, I guess I'm just not seeing things how even mainstream moderate Democrats are seeing things. I was on MSNBC over the weekend with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who said, quote, we saw fighting Joe and we loved it. And she also told us on the panel that one of her staffers who was supporting Warren saw that and now supports Biden. That that's what pushed him over the edge. Now, Lance Bottoms is a Biden surrogate. She goes out on the trail to campaign for Biden. So maybe she can't be counted on to be sober minded, to be even and fair in her what I would think would be should be obvious analysis. You know, don't go threatening the voters. But on CNN, they asked Linda Chavez, the director of the Becoming American Initiative, what she thought about. And here's what she said. I I actually like that. I mean, I thought that it really uh, made Biden seemed like he's alive and he's in there and he's fighting. Even Jen Psaki, former White House, Obama White House spokesman and State Department spokesperson said this. There are moments when people haven't seen that in the Democratic electorate uh, lately. This showed he had that. He was defending his son. Uh, I actually think for many people it was pretty appealing. So, so, so look, she was the State Department communications director. The State Department are the diplomats. She's cheering on punching ignorant farmers. Now. I'm not Mr. Imagine if Obama did it, and I rarely wave the it's all white male privilege card. But can you join me in this thought experiment? Imagine that was Cory Booker threatening to take an 83-year-old white farmer to the woodshed. Sir, I played tight end at Stanford and I will end you. Yeah, that'd go well. Imagine a female candidate doing this. I literally have never seen a female candidate threatening a voter with bodily harm. It could happen. It might actually redound to that candidate's benefit. One day, I think Kirsten Cinema is going to challenge someone not to an IQ test and jumping jacks or push-ups or whatever Hiawatha squats that Biden challenged this guy to. But Kirsten Cinema is going to say, hey, join me at a 5 a.m. CrossFit. We'll see who walks out of that gym afterwards. Or I could see Tulsi Gabbard threatening to make this guy eat dust. I could see that happening. In fact, that would probably work for her. She should try to orchestrate that. So again, to be clear in my, I thought, unbelievably uncontroversial analysis that it is weird and wrong for Joe Biden to have issued a vague, inarticulate threat that hinged on IQ testing and push-up contests. I don't know. Maybe that was his answer on selective college admissions, and he screwed that one up. 
it does bear mentioning that it is an obvious wrong thing to do and citing it as a right or feisty thing to do makes you obviously wrong. There it is. I said it. If you don't like it, fight me. With words, please, with words, especially Representative Gabbard, because she would probably be able to take me physically. On the show today, I spiel about a sober and productive hearing before the House Judiciary Committee. What is the object of that sentence? Hearing, Judiciary Committee, wrong. The object is I, I, I object, I object. But first, one of the great sports writers of our day writes a book about Eric Weiss. Wait, the middle infielder from the Oakland A's? No, 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 that was Walt Weiss. Eric Weiss, who? No, Houdini. Yes, Joe Posnanski has written a biography about Houdini, the idea of Houdini and the Houdini who was left behind after the actual Houdini, actually Eric Weiss, actually died. And we'll get into the death of Houdini as well. Joe Posnanski, author of The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So when we talk about icons, when we talk about performers, when we talk about quintessential Americans, Harry Houdini is a great example of all of those things. And one of the great things about him being a quintessential American is he claimed to be an American born in America, but he wasn't. And the self-made mythos is essential to who Harry Houdini was. And was is also the operative word in Joe Posnanski's new book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. If you know anything about Houdini, you know that he was interested in mystics and exposing mystics and the afterlife. But in this case, the afterlife means his explorations into life after death, but also what he has come to mean to us as a society since he shuffled off this mortal coil. Joe Posnanski, one of the great sports writers in America, when Houdini on this one. Hello, Joe. How you doing? It's doing? It's great to be here. So uh, this this occupies a lot of the book, but briefly tell us how Houdini became Houdini, and then we'll get to what it meant to be Houdini. Yeah, well, he grew up very poor, 
you know, he, he, he was born in Budapest, moved to Appleton, Wisconsin when he was four years old. Father was a rabbi there and lost his job when Houdini was eight. Never really had another job, full-time job after that. So Houdini's childhood is very rough, moving from place to place, no money, ran away from home when he was 12. And he was in New York and he was 16 years old and he, his father had just died and he fell in love with the idea of becoming a magician and he, he fell in love when he read the autobiography of Robert Houdin, who is who is the father of magic. The It's the book that probably inspired more young people to become magicians. And he so loved this book that he wanted his name and he took the last name, Udan, which he thought was pronounced Houdin, added an I to the end and became Houdini and, and with a friend who was the other Houdini. So they were the Houdini brothers. He went on the road and, and tried to become a magician. And the thing that's crazy is for nine years, he was a complete bust. You know, he, he tried everything. You know, he got married during that time. His wife, Bess, they worked together. They tried magic. They tried comedy. They tried music. They tried acting. Anything to stay on the stage. And he was a complete bust and was absolutely looked like it was going to be – he was going to have to quit. And, and he tried – at one point to sell all of his secrets and nobody was buying. So he had a complete and utter meltdown and was ready to give it up and felt like he had to. And at, at that exact moment, he was performing in one of his last performances and a guy named Beck came to the to his show, Martin Beck, who at the time was one of the big names in vaudeville. Martin Beck saw the show, liked what he saw, called Houdini over, had dinner with him and Bess and told him, listen – you're a terrible magician. You're, you're, you're <laughs> Got to level with you. Yeah, Got to level with you. You're a terrible <laughs> magician. But the handcuffs thing is really good. Getting out of those handcuffs, that's really interesting. Drop all the magic and become, you know, he didn't have the word escape artist. Not, that had never happened. But concentrate on getting out of jails and, and handcuffs. And, and Houdini took him at his word and it was instant. You know, of course, it was instant in large part because Martin Beck was a big vaudeville guy, so he was able to book him in theaters. Mm -hmm. But by the end of that year, I mean, you know, after nine years of nothing, by the end of that year, he was already one of the most famous performers in America. I like the idea of the uh, guy who tries to sell his secrets and there is no market for nothing. him. I think we call that Carter <laughs> Page today. So was escape artistry, which didn't have a name, was that a small portion of the magic shows of the day? And it was uh, Houdini doing a little of it, but Beck really recognizing that that was his advantage, his competitive advantage in the field? Yeah, I mean, it's not without precedent. I mean, even his act, he sort of bought from somebody else. So there were others who had done various things with escape. But there's no question, after Martin Beck told him, listen, this is where you're future is. Your future, if you're going to be on stage, it's going to be doing these kinds of escapes. He took it to a level that, that had never been seen before. He he went from town to town, challenged people to bring handcuffs with them. Later, that became challenged him to come up with any kind of trap, uh, a chain, a uh, box, uh, anything that they could come up with <laughs> to try to keep him trapped. And, you know, his famous slogan was, nobody, nobody in the world can keep Houdini a prisoner. And he would go everywhere just and do this. And it was new. And he created the word escapologist. That's what he called himself. And it was new. And, and he took this to a whole different market, you know, because he was he was somebody who like kept thinking of new ways to amaze people with his escapes. And and let's say this up front, the kinds of escapes he was doing then 
would not necessarily impress people today. I mean, he was getting, you know, people were bringing handcuffs and he'd say, okay, Mm -hmm. uh, I will get out of these handcuffs. And then he'd go into a little box with a curtain so nobody could see him. And then he would Mm. come out and people would be staring at the box for as long as it took. There'd be like a little orchestra playing and then he'd he'd come out like, hey, I got out. And everybody would cheer. They would think it was the greatest thing ever. You didn't know what was in that box. You had no idea what it was doing. Like a number of handcuff keys maybe? (laughs) It could have been anything. Um, But yeah, he just- Oh, oh, how about this? A twin. (laughs) A twin with the same clothes. That's how you do it. And then you saw him off. I just figured out. (laughs) So yeah. so and, and But he just kept doing it and he kept coming up with new sort of- bizarre thing you know he started doing these escapes from jails and he would do them naked like the whole idea was hey i i don't have a pick i don't have a key i'll strip down naked and you know and of course that was you know in addition to being very weird it was a little bit scandalous a little bit a little bit crazy so yeah he kept finding new ways to turn escape into something and i wouldn't say before him that that was an act. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. once he started becoming successful, lots and lots of people copied the act, imitated him, even imitated his name, all of these other things. But the one thing you'd have to say for Houdini, because he was not, you know, most magicians would tell you he was not a great magician. He was not somebody who invented his own tricks. He was not somebody who thought that way very much. But the idea of escape as a performance, that's all Houdini really. Was he, it's very hard to know. We can't compare him to Ruth. There are no records. He never out escaped the league, for instance. <laughs> but would people who see him, who you, maybe someone who saw him, he died in his 50s. So maybe someone who saw him in 1920 something sure. lived to the 80s and they were great escape artists. And, you, you know, Ricky Jay or someone could then talk to him and the stories are passed down. So what I'm trying to get at, was he actually good at escaping as a technical thing? He was a great showman. Yes. Was, but was that? particularly impressive? I I guess it was really impressive. I mean, even people who were not particularly fans of Houdini or didn't think that what he was doing was magic, because that was a big thought at the time, was that this is not really magic. This is like, you know, he's like a daredevil, right? He's like some, some other kind of thing. But really, on down the line, they said actually seeing him perform was extraordinary. And and there were people that were that that saw him and and lived on for years and years. Orson Welles saw him when he was very young and you know wasn't always super impressed with Houdini's style, you know, the the way he carried himself and that kind of thing, but said the mm-hmm. shows were remarkable and his is it's hard to imagine being a better showman than Houdini was. I mean, he had this masterful set of timing, you know, just the, he, he knew exactly when to come out, exactly when to like, you know, do something that would make the crowd go crazy. He did have this sense of an audience and sense of, of showmanship and of course, unmatched sense of publicity. So he put this whole thing together. And I think when you see it all in one, you know, in one package, I think it was unlike anything else out there. So it's the life and afterlife of Houdini. But before we get to the afterlife and what all that means, let's get to his death because it's taken on a mythology and he was a person who courted mythology. How much of the mythology is real? Well, it depends. It depends on which version. I mean, of did he die on Halloween? He did die on Halloween. That is not mythology. He did die after getting hit in the stomach. That's not mythology. He did not die in the water torture cell, which is mythology. So it depends on which version of the Houdini's death you've heard about. The quick version of his death is that he was already sick. At least that's the, the best guess. He was doing an interview with some college kids in Montreal, 
And they were noticing how tired he looked. His skin, he looked very pale. He was in pain. He had to lean back into a couch. He was very, he was exhausted. And he probably, all right, so this is where mythology begins and ends. He probably at that point already had appendicitis and simply was refusing to go to the doctor. Then a guy comes in, you know, who's also a college student, and he says, Houdini, I've always heard that you could withstand a punch in the stomach from anyone, that you challenge people to punch you in the stomach. There is no evidence that Houdini ever challenged anybody to punch him in the stomach. But (laughs) Houdini probably either, one, was too prideful to say anything about it, or two, had forgotten because he had challenged everybody to everything all of his life. So he's like, yeah, I probably challenged – at some point I probably challenged people to hit me in the stomach. And Houdini tried to talk his way out of it, and he was like, eh, you know, I don't want to worry about that. Why don't you he, – he, like, flexed his muscles, like, feel how strong I am, and tried to use that, I guess, as a, as a diversion. And, no, the guy said, no, I, I've heard that you can do that. And so Houdini said, okay, and he started to get up, and the guy punched him in the stomach as many as 10 times. He punched him three times in the stomach and then started wailing away on him, according to the witnesses that were there. And until Houdini raised his hand and said, okay, that will do. And that's where it stopped. And Houdini you know, would, would always say that he had not flexed. He had not gotten himself ready for the punch in the stomach. Regardless, if he really had appendicitis at the time and the guy punched him in the stomach 10 times, I don't think it would have mattered what he would have done. But after he gets punched in the stomach, he's in agony, absolute agony. And so there are those who believe that the punches themselves – caused the appendicitis. And and that's actually how the doctors ruled when, after he died. But regardless, he had a terrible fever and the chills and he kept refusing to go to the doctor. And the train, you know, left Montreal, went to Detroit for him to perform. He went out on stage to perform, even though doctors were pleading with him to go to the hospital. He went out and performed. At intermission, he collapsed, went back on stage even after collapsing and then collapsed on the stage finally went to the hospital and they removed his appendix, but it was too late. And he died five days later on Halloween. So that story is as weird and and convoluted as it is. That is the actual true story of how Harry Houdini died. That said, for all the embracing of myths, do you think you found out, disinterred, or discovered any bona fide new information that has never been reported before? There is. There are a couple of things that it's kind of cool because, you know, when you write a book like this, you're writing it, of course, for a big audience and people who... Hopefully. Yeah, that's <laughs> the idea, right? So because of that, because, you know, you're trying to do that, you you know, you, you, you're writing stuff that, that people in the Houdini community have heard a million times, right? They're like, oh. Do they call themselves something like Trekkies? Or? Uh, I called them Houdini world. Nobody seemed to argue mm-hmm. with that. So I thought that was yeah. fine. But yeah, I didn't. So I, you know, I knew that. But I also wanted people who were in the Houdini community to to kind of get something like, oh, they, you know, hey, I want my own discovery on this thing. And I found a couple. And the big one, I think, is how Houdini got his act, how he got his first act. You know, it's something that was sort of reported before. And I sort of fed off of that and was able to do quite a bit of research on it, was able to flesh it out. And and it's pretty cool because he really ended up buying his act from a washed up magician who was doing a lot of the things that Houdini became famous for later. He was doing them, you know, in very, very small, like what they used to call dime museums and in little tiny towns, you know, dotting the Northeast. And then at some point, Houdini bought his act and, you know, it took 
at that point, it still took another 10 years before he was able to to become Harry Houdini. But when he did, he he really used this guy's act in great detail. So that was a fun new addition to the Houdini uh, folders, I guess. Joe Posnanski is a multiple-time Sports Writer of the Year Award winner. He hosts a great podcast uh, along with Michael Schur, the creator of The Good Place, called The Podcast. And his new book is The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you. And now the spiel. In our great pizzazzless reckoning of the unconscionable, you're not really exciting enough misdeeds of our shamefully incompetent, but that was kind of priced in, wasn't it? President, we had quite a spectacle today. But was it really worth watching? Well, watch I did. One side tried to take us through the facts, while the other side tried to drag us through the mud. Let me ask you this. Let's go back in time, unless you are a college student. But think back to a class you might have taken in college. And it was one of these classes where you learn something. Like, you maybe remember it as an epiphany. And the teacher was trying to carefully explain to you a complex phenomenon. I don't know, whatever it was. The Hundred Years' War, the Sacco and Vanzetti case, how a black hole works. And maybe it was hard to follow at first, but you gave an effort, and he or she gave an effort, and you were edified, and it was worth it. And you probably would look back on that professor as a good professor who was good at explaining things, using vivid examples and interesting language and relevant facts and maybe anticipating your questions. And you look back on that professor fondly. But what if during class there were a group of disruptive, sneering students who were allowed to behave just as pure ruffians? Not just allowed, but pretty much mandated by the school to have about 40% of all the allotted class time and allowed to cite as their sources books on how black holes are really just optical illusions or how the Hundred Years War lasted nah, nah, a week, week and a half at best if you look at it the right way or how Sacco and Vanzetti weren't even good fish merchants. And if they were such good fish merchants, why doesn't your professor let us interview the fish? I think those fish might disagree. What are you scared of, professor? Well, of course, of course, that would be unbelievably annoying and it would get in the way of learning. But you know what else? You might also come to the conclusion that the professor was not a good professor, was not providing the necessary lessons to properly teach. And yes, part of you might think, okay, it was kind of unfair how they set that up to allow these forces of ignorance to throw dust in eyes that were open and eager to perceive. But you wouldn't look at the professor fondly. You probably wouldn't look at college fondly. You might not even like learning. This is pretty much the dynamic with the impeachment hearings. The Democrats, you might hear they're doing a poor job or are having circles run around them by the Republicans or are not doing enough to win over the American people. But when the other side is allowed to pursue ridiculous distraction tactics, how much ground could possibly be gained? It's easier to tear down a house than to build one up. And when half the committee is acting as termites, that's got to be a harder construction job still. Some examples of Republican distraction tactics were to prattle on about how Adam Schiff won't come as a witness because he didn't, you know, witness anything. Or to compare the rules of impeachment, which is not a criminal trial, to the rules of a criminal trial. And even if it were a criminal trial, this would be the grand jury phase, which means the prosecutor runs it. There are no guarantees of cross-examination, etc. But the main thing the Republicans did was object over everything for any reason. 
and no reason. Here was Mike Johnson of Louisiana after hearing the committee's lawyer, Barry Burke, lay out the case that President Trump did indeed pressure a foreign government for personal political gain. Thank you, Mr. Burke. Mr. Castor, you Mr. are, Chairman, Mr. You are Chairman. recognized for 30 minutes. Mr. Chairman, point of order. Mr. Castor is recognized. Mr. Castor is recognized for 30 minutes. Mr. Chairman, point of order. Mr. Castor is recognized for 30 minutes. Mr. Chairman, the witness has violated Rule 17, and my point of order should be heard. Point of order. The witness has used language which impugns the motives of the president and suggests he's disloyal to his country, and those words should be stricken from the record and taken down. Now, after some back and forth, it was noted by Chairman Gerald Nadler that this was not a legitimate point of order for a few reasons. One is that this is an inquiry to determine presidential culpability. And if a witness indeed finds culpability, that witness can very well avoid testifying to culpability. There'd be no point in actually calling an expert if his expert opinion violates this so-called rule. A couple of other reasons why this point of order couldn't stand is that it's not witnesses, it's members of Congress that are governed by that rule cited and aren't allowed to denigrate the president. Furthermore, this isn't a point of order. That's not what points of order are. Also this, from Pennsylvania's Guy Reschenthaler, not a point of order. Mr. Chairman, if this were a court of law, you'd be facing sanctions right now by the Bar Association. The gentleman will state his point of order, not Mr. make Mr. Chairman, speech. how are we supposed to process over 8,000 pages of documents that came from Various committees. General, that is not a point of order. That is not a point of order. Not a point of order. Nor was this. Mr. Chairman, if either you can ask, you can answer. Mr. Chairman, I'm not. He can either ask or answer. He can't do both. Mayor, you can ask or answer. You can't do both. Gentleman is not recognized. Chairman, Chairman, I make a point of order that he's badgering the witness. Badgering the witness. That idea advanced by Representative Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, the Badger State was ruled out of order because it's not a point of order. Points of order are things like recognizing a speaker out of order or screwing up the timing, usually something procedural. There are uh, rules about which legislation can and can't be considered when. There's no badgering the witness. You saw that on a David E. Kelly show. That's not for here. Mr. Mr. Chairman, can you rule on my point of order that he's badgering the witness because he's doing that? Well, he can and he did. And it was out of order. Which Rep. Sensenbrenner took in good stride? No, he didn't. Point of order, the committee is not an order, and the chairman is not an order. That is not a point of order. The committee is an order. The well, would you rule on my original point of order? You, the original point of order was not cognizable and does not necessitate a ruling. So if you're following along, his point of order wasn't a point of order, and his point of order that it was a point of order was wrong and also not in order, as was his follow-up point that that point of order over the point of order being not in order wasn't a point of order. I think I need some water. Ironically, this grand discussion over order was pretty much an exercise in chaos. That is not a point of order. The it is a point of order. There's no rules. It is not a point of order. The gentleman will continue. I also enjoyed when Representative Andy Biggs said that while the first point might not have been in order, if it were in order, you know what that means, that the chair is out of order. My point of order is that you were out of order in your ruling. That, by the way, in case you're playing along at home, also not a proper point of order. That was just an argument. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, no. Thank you.
Thank you, Congress. I will not referee this. It was not a match. It was not a contest. It was one side showing up in uniform, kicking off from the 35-yard line or assembling at center court for a jump ball, and the other team running around, waving their arms, claiming, this isn't a sport. We never saw the rules. The draft wasn't fair. We weren't told ahead of time about this game. What's the name of the referee? What are the referee's motivations? Who is this so-called whistleblower? There was one fun moment, though. Fun for me because it got my mind to considering some things besides this sorry slam dunk case in which the defense is to claim rims, points, and the ball don't exist. I would like to thank Representative Doug Collins for this moment. And you and I, we're not going to play cute here. Somebody took the four records that you asked for, or at least four, took those numbers and then said, hey, let's play a match game. All right, let's do it. Get ready to match the stars. And here's the star of Match Game, Jerry Nadler. (sighs) Thanks, Johnny. Dim-witted Devin is so dim. How dim is he? He said, I couldn't have conducted a phone call with an indicted Ukrainian because I can't even blank. And we will see. If you match our stars, Charles Nelson Riley, Nipsey Russell, and Brett Summer after the credits, stay tuned unless you object. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader, just producer, used to tour the country where his bit was challenging any able-bodied man to punch him directly in the stomach. And when they did, he would sue. It was quite lucrative. Christina DeJosa, also just producer, wonders if Joe Biden was one of those guys from Daniel's Carney days. The gist. So dim-witted Devin is so dim. How dim is he? He said, I couldn't have conducted a phone call with an indicted Ukrainian because I can't even blank. Let's check in with our stars. Brett Summers. Work a smartphone. Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> Conduct. I can't even play an instrument. Nipsey Russell. At this rate, Trump's approval rating will soon be subterranean. But dim-witted Devin didn't talk to that man because he can't even speak Ukrainian. Umpur Dapur Dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>